Welcome to Top of the Game with Javier Sade, where we talk to amazing people that are shaping the world. These lightning round talks explore what makes remarkable leaders tick. Thinkers and doers pushing humankind forward and at the top of their game. Impactful insights, global perspectives, valuable wisdom you can use every day in your life and work. This is Top of the Game. Enjoy today's episode. Here's Javier. Brad Gerstner is a serial entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and hedge fund manager. He is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Altimeter Capital, a leading technology investment firm he started during the 08 financial crisis. Brad and his team are known for fundamental analysis and deep expertise in consumer internet, software, and artificial intelligence across the capital formation cycle, a style colloquially known as crossover investing. The efficient and productive use of capital, quote, knows no buckets, and Brad is at the forefront of these crossover opportunities across the private, quasi-public, and public markets. He has been involved in over 100 IPOs, and some of his notable investments include Snowflake, ByteDance, Silo, Uber, Meta, Plaid, Okta, Gusto, and many others. Brad was born and raised in Indiana, and his dad's failed business taught him many lessons early in life. As he puts it, in life, you are either running towards something or away from something. A truly incredible path. Enjoy this conversation. Brad, what's happening, man? It's great to see you. Great to see you again. A couple Harvard Business School misfits right here. Misfits 100%. And it's a new year, which is always a great kind of reset. What did you do for the holidays? Um, well, as you know, both uh, Lincoln and Jack are big mountain freeride skiers. Yeah. And so they're both, uh, you know, training really hard. In fact, my young guy is up at the Sugar Bowl Academy full time in Tahoe. Um, and the, the, here's the most dangerous thing, right? Like your, your kids are finally as passionate about skiing as you are. But the problem is now they're both more capable and they're going off these big cliffs and doing yeah. all this stuff. And they're like, Dad, you're still young. You could go off the cliffs with us. And of course, you try to do it and 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 yeah. it's probably not a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a big difference between Gen Z and Gen X. But <laughs> since we're talking about kids, I think a good place to start with you. Is, I mean, I, I we're super good friends and I know you. I've known you forever, but your story is just remarkable. Why don't you start there up until grad school was it which is when when you and i met yeah well i'm going to give you the quick version because one of the things i love about your pod javi is uh it's quick hits so um you know listen i was born in a small town in indiana um i'm the youngest of four um and you know my dad was my hero and and he tried to start a business uh in a really bad time 1978 double digit interest rates and inflation we had hostages in iran the japanese were devastating our auto industry i happened to live in a place called the rust belt in yep. northwest indiana so and my dad you know didn't know anything about business but did know something about keeping his word and you know so he tried to start a business with uh with a group of, of folks in the auto uh, parts industry, uh, uh, machine mm -hmm. industry, mm -hmm. and um, it didn't work out. And so I was in fifth, sixth, seventh grade at the time, and that was super formative for me, right? Like, I think we're all trying to run away from something or towards something. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of my life, I think, trying to figure out, like, what happened there, like, both politically and economically, what was wrong, 
right? Why was were the conditions and the backdrop so bad? And then specifically, right, really understand the world of business in a way, um, you know, that uh, could make sense out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up getting a scholarship to college, studied at Oxford, came back, worked for my uh, incredible statesman, uh, like U.S. Senator Dick Luger uh, in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. He was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee at the time. Remember, this Great. is a heady, heady time in the world. I was at Oxford 90-91. You know, the wall had just come down. I was traveling around Europe. And, the and first Sam, Iraq war, yeah. Sam Nunn and Dick Luger were denuclearizing, right, the, the, the stockpiles in the Soviet Union and the United States. So really important time. Um, I would go on to law school at Indiana University, yep. uh, started practicing law, and I got a call one day from uh, Dick Luger, and, and he offered me the, the role as Deputy Secretary of State. In How Indiana. old were you? How old were you? I was 26. A and, baby. Like a baby. You were like a baby. I was young, um, but I think by that point in time, mm-hmm. you know, this was a different style of Republican. I mean, he would be probably called a Democrat today. He's very centrist. <laughs> yeah. He had been the mayor of Indianapolis, think revolution at the roots, reinvented the city. I mean, and, you know, Deputy Secretary of State in Indiana had been kind of a launching pad. Evan Bayh had been Deputy Secretary of State, then Secretary of State, then, of course, Governor and Senator. And so it was a real honor. I went over there and did that. But quickly discovered that if I wanted to run for office, I couldn't, I just couldn't bring myself to begging people for money every day. I'd been poor my whole life. I didn't want to continue being poor. And so one of my good buddies from law school um, uh, said to me, you ought to go back to business school, you know, make a million bucks and then come back and run for office. And that made sense to me. And at the last day, I think the applications could be submitted. I, you know, put my application in the in the FedEx box uh, for Harvard Business School. It's the only place I applied and was lucky enough that they let me in. And then a couple months later, met you. And, uh, you know, kind of that's how that's how it all happened. And that was 26 years ago. So the fir- you described the first half of your life in four minutes and 22 seconds, which is <laughs> remarkable. I know you're a pro and you do many podcasts. We'll talk about your, your podcast uh, trajectory in a second. But I really like how you talked about us finding our purpose in life is kind of running towards something at the same, simultaneously running away from something. You ended up starting a bunch of companies, including the company, the amazing firm you run now. Um, maybe tell the listeners a little bit about the that, that journey of running towards something when you're starting something new and you know getting punched in the face, but every so often it's like golf. You hit one amazing ball and then it's like <laughs> five whips. So maybe a little bit about that that particular experience. I know you've done a, a, so much, but well, well, you know. So the truth is, my grandfather said I couldn't be an entrepreneur. So this is my <laughs> dad's dad. After my dad went basically bankrupt, he refused to declare bankruptcy because he wanted to pay all the money back. But you know, he lost his business. So that's why I went to law school because to honor my grandfather's wishes. And but then I felt like, okay, I checked that box. I have an insurance policy. So when you and I were in business school in 1999, I mean, listen, I, I was so excited about the internet. I wanted to get to Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a lot of classmates, as you know, who were trying to start a business. And you remember this as well. A lot of them would draft me because I was a lawyer, and they would say, "Hey, will you help us put this deal together yeah. and help us negotiate the deal?" And 
there were a bunch of venture capital firms in Boston um, that they were pitching, but one up and coming uh, a group that wasn't even a firm yet um, was two guys, David Fialco and Joel Cutler. And at the time, Amazing. they were kind of investing their own money. It was called Fialco Cutler Capital. And um, so I went in, and you may not even know this story, but there are a couple of our classmates, two different pitches. I pitched them with with those teams. And David pulls me aside after the second pitch, and he said, listen, we're not going to invest in either of these companies, but you got to come work with Joel and I. Um, and, you know, I thought, oh, that's interesting. Like, it, it, like it is interesting what they're doing. But I said, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to Silicon Valley. I want to, you know, go work with a startup. I was really focused on that. Yeah. By the end of business school, I was, you know. And by the way, uh, this I, is the firm that became General Catalyst for the listeners. That's a yeah. yeah that's a yeah. firm that became General Catalyst. By the end of business school, yeah. um, you know, or right as we were graduating, um, I was, you know, thinking about well, maybe I'll stick closer back to Boston because in the second year of business school, I had started working with David and Joel on an idea. It would be the launch idea for General Catalyst, and it was an early online travel company. And long story short, became the co-CEO of that business. We sold it to Barry Diller and Dara Kusher Shahi in 2001. Mm -hmm. You know, we kind of threaded the needle, whereas you remember a lot of our classmates uh, just got blown up mm -hmm. because the internet you, you know, bubble, bubble yeah. exploded. So, you know, helping to do that. Now, when we sold that company, I thought I'd go back to General Catalyst. It was just getting started. I don't know. That first phone was maybe 25 million bucks. Amazing. And I was very close and still to this day, very close with David and Joel. But uh, another classmate friend, Basil Samaya, calls me up and he said, hey, I have an idea for another startup. Do you want to do it with me? And we ended up starting a company called OpenList. Now, there we got a couple of term sheets. We turned them down. We bootstrapped the business ourselves. We sold it to a public company in Seattle mm -hmm. uh, called MarchX. So, you know, I, I, I quickly, you know, really gravitated toward this entrepreneurial thing, which in many ways, again, running towards something. You know, think about this. My dad tried to be an entrepreneur. It didn't work. So mm -hmm. to vindicate him, right, mm -hmm. what do you want to become even though – uh, you know, it's against the odds, an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I would I would go to start Altimeter in 2008 um, and, you know, get back to the investing business, but do it, you know, at the intersection of building your own operating company, right? That, that you have to set a vision, you have to recruit employees, you have to raise money, um, and you have to compete in one of the most competitive markets in the world, which is uh, the public hedge fund business and the venture capital business. And, uh, you know, started that in 2008 um, by myself with very little capital because the world was melting down. As you remember, Michelle and I had just gotten married and and uh, we had our first baby and she thought I was crazy starting this firm. And most people thought I was crazy. Um, but, you know, it's been a, just an incredible journey and really my life's work. <laughs> Talk about heads. If the audience's heads are not spinning, 2008 for the younger listeners is when we had the financial crisis. So to start a financial services company, buying risk in the middle of this complete global meltdown is crazy. So let's fast forward a little bit. I mean, a lot. You've been an investor in you know hundreds of companies, some of them extremely successful, iconic, Snowflake, Zillow, all this stuff. But one thing I think you saw um, years ago was kind of this connective tissue between a garage and a business plan with 
the most liquid capital markets in the world. I, I would definitely would, would say I did not come up with the idea. My <laughs> idols, my heroes in the investment business, mm -hmm. right? Folks like Warren Buffett, uh, folks like Seth Klarman at Baupost, Paul Reeder at Par, you know, they did both public and private investing, right? Mm -hmm. The history of the hedge fund business is public and private, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, but we just didn't call them crossover funds, right? In fact, if you would ask Warren Buffett, you know, why do you invest in private companies as well as public companies? He'd say, no, 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 you, you missed the script. I invest in great companies great that company. are mispriced. I don't care where they are in their life cycle. Whether they're public or not public doesn't, you know, uh, uh, you know, just goes to a question around liquidity. Yep. And so we have a continuum of liquidity. So in many ways, when I was watching uh, – uh, the technology markets exploding on the back of the internet in 2004 and 2005, I said, wow, A, I want to do it that way, the way my heroes had done it for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a lot more fun. Yeah. I don't check my brain in at the door just because a company goes public. If you want to be a great analyst, anthropologist, then you want to understand the full life cycle of these businesses. Yep. Secondly, I thought that these businesses would scale a lot faster on the back of the internet, right? So these weren't going to be tiny little businesses. They were going to get bigger faster. They were going to require more capital. And so we we're going to have, you know, this third market developed that was in between venture and going public, kind of quasi-public market, right? Mm -hmm. These are companies that were going to be worth more than a billion dollars. And of course, that's the way the world did evolve. We we're yep. just early to it. Everybody yep. fought me on this. Every LP fought me on this. They thought it was a terrible idea. They wanted you to specialize early, mid, late, growth, you know, public. Um, but I, I decided early on I was going to build a firm that I loved to work at. And I wasn't going to deviate from that, right? Like if success demanded that I build a firm that was not a firm that I love to work at, then I'd rather not be successful. And so the fact that I get to the, the utter privilege uh, when I walk into this office every single morning in Silicon Valley and I talk with folks who are working on the most exciting series A deals, you know, in the world. And I also get to talk to the Frank Slootmans right, of the world, the Michael Dells of the world, the public market folks who are innovating at scale, right? That to me gives me huge competitive advantage, both in terms of information flow, insights, connecting the dots. And at the end of the day, if you're gonna generate alpha in this business, you better have a wedge, right? What is that competitive advantage? And so we have two incredible teams, everybody at Altimeter, all of the investment analysts, they either major in venture capital, in venture, or they major in public and they minor in the other. Love so it. everybody gets to do everything. Everybody sits in the meeting. And it's that which I think is highly unique, even among the crossover funds. I think we're the only ones who do that. It is unique. I mean, it's it's remarkable. And to your point, investing and in capitalism is about the productive use of capital. Do you care what vector do you use? And the fact that LPs use all these buckets and all this stuff and you, 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 uh, you went the way you thought it was best to use the capital is what makes the, the, the story just remarkable. So you talked a little bit about the, um, and I've heard you, many people have heard you talk about the secular platform shift of the you know early 2000s and late 90s with the internet, then mobile, 08 to 13, call it. And now we're going through what seems to everybody, and I think including you, to be even bigger than those two put together. What's your view on the future using that kind of tech innovation slash AI lens? 
anthropologically, the evolution of technology is a nonlinear event, right? Mm -hmm. Because platforms build upon prior platforms, right? So, you know, you don't have the internet unless you have microcomputers and, you know, microchips. You don't, you don't have uh, uh, mobile unless you have the internet. You don't have mm -hmm. cloud unless you have the internet. And so just think about it this way, you know, when somebody launches a business today, um, right, they have 3 billion potential customers, right? Meta reaches 3 billion people uh, pretty much every, every day. And so nobody in the history of capitalism has ever been able to scale a business as fast, as efficiently, uh, you know, as that. And so when you think about artificial intelligence, which is leveraging the power of machines mm -hmm. uh, to reason, and to augment the, uh, you know, the capacity of humans to mm -hmm. do everything that they do, okay, that is built on top of cloud, that is built on top of mobile supercomputers in all of our pockets, that is built on top of the internet, right? Like all of those were required preconditions mm -hmm. to the you know to the Cambrian moment that we have today around artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. and so. Um, it's very, I think that's very straightforward as to why this is likely to be the biggest uh, thing yet. Um, and it touches, it also touches all things enterprise, i.e. it helps enterprises make better decisions in everything that they do, leveraging the power of data and machines to augment that intelligence. And it improves the lives of consumers, right? So, you know, it, it, it's going to provide a personal assistant that's super intelligent in all of our pockets to make all of our lives even better, right? So this is going to be a massive disruptive force that will play out over decades that will impact all of our lives. Um, there are going to be some challenges that come with that that we're going to yeah. overcome because we have self-correcting systems that can overcome them. And they're going to be just enormous uh, benefits, whether it's in life sciences and solving uh, mysteries around our, our health that, that have perplexed us for decades, whether it's in education where we're going to be able to give personalized education like Khan Academy is already doing to, to hundreds of millions to give shots on gold to people who live in rural Indiana or people who live in you know rural Tanzania. Um, and so I think for all of human activity, it gets up-leveled as a result of this. Um, but mind you, we not only have that super cycle, I mean, we have some big other cycles going on. Space, incredible. right? Like, like, like it's incredible what is going on there. We are going to be a multi-planetary species and there's gonna be enormous amount of money spent from defense to manufacturing that occurs within space, mobility within space, et cetera. Electrification, right? We are going to be a post-fossil fuel, uh, you know, planet. And what's that look like, right? Um, and so enormous investments and interesting things uh, that are going on there. And then robotics is another one. You start putting an LLM inside of the hardware so that these things can actually start thinking, um, you know, uh, and, and connecting dots um, in ways that we've never been able to perform before. So it's clear to me, you know, you've heard me say most of human innovation has occurred within the last hundred years. Right, like the like the preponderance. Mm -hmm. There have been 110 billion people on this planet. The vast majority of them never saw a single invention in their entire life. Right, their life cycle was shorter than the invention cycle. We have seven billion people on the planet today, right? And they're seeing inventions every day that are dramatically impacting their life. You know, my mother's 88 years old, and she's really, really sharp. 
And when we reflect on, you know, she, she she's using chat GPT. She's on her mobile device. She's texting me all the time about but your mom the, uses chat GPT. I, mean, oh, yeah. I love that. Oh yeah. No, she is. She is on it. Oh, I know, and, um, you know, but she's like, I never thought that I would see any of these innovations. She's like, but they just keep coming faster and faster. And I said, precisely. Um, and they will for our kids as well. So at any rate, I, I, you know, I'm so passionate about this um, because it's a, you know, I could have been born at 99% of human history and would not have had the privilege to do what we do. It just so happens we happen to be living in the middle of this Cambrian moment. And I think, you know, uh, the privilege to sit in Silicon Valley and partner with the people who are at the tip of the spear and driving that innovation is, is uh, super fun. I love the way you distill that into kind of cosmic timelines, right? Like humans have been here. If if it was a 24-hour clock, the last second um, <laughs> of a 24-hour day. Um, and it's interesting that you keep using this Cambrian thing, which is also kind of a cosmic yeah. thing. You know, I my sense is that what makes this so compelling and interesting is that intelligence is what makes us human. And here we are trying to create things that are also intelligent and potentially will eventually become more intelligent because the infinite power of computers. One last thing, which is kind of a full circle, you thought at one point you were going to do some public policy. You ended up having this and are still at the, you know, at the peak and the top of the game of your career. And then you're now doing something really interesting related to public policy, but it's really more about this connection. Invest America. Can you describe to the audience how you come up with the idea and what do you think the outcome eventually will be when it comes out in full force? Yeah, so first, uh, thanks for giving me a chance to talk about it. So Invest in America is a very simple idea. It's giving everybody skin in the upside of America through the power of a private investment account. So it's a piece of legislation that we're helping to uh, uh, push and, and hopefully will uh, we'll, we'll get passed over the course of the next year which would cause the Treasury Department to create a private investment account at the same time they create your Social Security an, uh, uh, account when you're born. Mm -hmm. uh, not at your account, but you give you your Social Security number. Mm -hmm. um, and they would seed it with $1,000 from the federal government, the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. So we have 3.7 million children born every year. All of them get a, a private investment account with $1,000 seeded from the federal government. Think of it as a 401k from birth. Mm -hmm. From there, your parents can add to it. Um, uh, employers. So uh, imagine you, uh, your parent worked at Uber, United Airlines. They could match that thousand dollars a year as a corporate benefit to your parents uh, by by adding to your Invest America account. Philanthropy could add to that account. But think about this: the power of this, because I know that uh, you have an experience similar to mine. I was on the outside looking in as a kid, right? And it was it it, it, it was very hard to understand this world of finance, and. Mm -hmm. Now imagine in the seventh grade, whether you live in inner city Trenton, whether you live in, you know, in, in the south side of L.A., whether you live in rural Indiana, or rural Mississippi, right? All shades, all 3.7 million kids show up in that seventh grade class. They say, hey, today we're going to talk about compounding or democracy or capitalism, right? Open up your Invest America account. Look at your ownership of NVIDIA, of Tesla, of Apple, of United Healthcare, you own part of those companies, right? Your account by that point in time will probably be worth over $10,000. So now you have a kid's attention, 
They're, that's theirs. They have title. They have ownership. They have a stake in the game of capitalism. Yeah. So this is a powerful force to reconnect every citizen, right, to the power of free markets, of capitalism, and democracy. And did you know today, less than half of people under the age of 40 believe in capitalism, right? If you listen to Ray Dalio, this is the existential threat that we face because technology compresses wealth, right? It leads to wealth disparities and you need to find ways to renegotiate the social contract. And so, listen, it's gonna come down, when we renegotiate the social contract, it's gonna go one of two directions. Either you're gonna get bigger government, more entitlement, universal basic income, et cetera, or we can harness the power of markets, of the economy to reconnect all citizens. So I envision a public-private partnership where the public, where the federal government seeds it and then gets out of the way. Let's the magic of the economy and the private sector work. That's what's worked best across our economy. And so it's incredible, Javi, since, um, since, since starting to evolve this idea, as you know, from uh, you know, really uh, the, the, the Clintons to, to, to the Kochs, we have a lot of enthusiasm from the far, uh, you, you know, from, from, from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. Tell me three other ideas that have Democrats and Republicans, you know, both excited today. And so and I think the reason they are excited is because we need to get more people into the game. Right. Mm -hmm. And we need to do it by way of leveraging the power of the private economy. And so we have members on both sides of the aisle who are lining up to author and to co-sponsor the legislation. We have the incredible Matt Lira in Washington, D.C., who came on board as our executive director, who has a history of bipartisan uh, you know, successes. Um, and I set up a 501c3. I, I've, I've said publicly that I've been funding this and will continue to fund it. But now we have contributions coming in from Democrats and Republicans on both sides. Um, and we'll be running a campaign in support of this. It's just a remarkable story, Brad, that you're putting all of this experience to use and hopefully benefit um, one of the, you know, kind of the biggest issues we have, which is kind of the sustainability of our retirement funds and people having a dignified retirement, just the power of capitalism and compounding to solve uh, big issues. I love you, man. Thanks for being here. It's great to see you. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For information and links about today's guests, check out the show notes and visit topofthegame-thepod.com. Your host, Javier Sade, the show Top of the Game. Thanks for listening.